Hello and welcome to Extra Innings from the Ballpark, a podcast from the US Center at the London School of Economics. Last episode, you heard from Harvard professor Jeff Frieden. My name is Jeff Frieden and I'm a professor of government at Harvard University. And I'm very happy to be here at the LSE and very happy to be podcasting. But that podcast only featured a fraction of the topics we covered with him. And so we decided to share this entire interview about the past, present, and future of American monetary policy with you. Well, so the first question I've got to, to ask you um, is, in the State of the Union, um, President Obama said that anyone who's claiming that America's economy was in decline was, was peddling a fiction. And, you know, first off, do you think this is true? And also, I'm interested to know about any sort of threats you think the U.S. economy faces, both internal and external, uh, at the moment. Well, I think there are two ways of thinking about this. The first is in the short to medium run, and the second is in the long run. First, let's start with the short to medium run. In the current period, the U.S. economy actually is doing relatively well. If we compare American economic growth over the past several years, since the crisis really, since 2007, 2008, the U.S. has recovered. Uh, It was a very slow recovery. It was a recovery that uh, was much more difficult than previous recoveries from previous recessions. That was largely because what we faced was not a typical cyclical recession, but rather a serious and very devastating debt crisis. So we had a massive many trillion dollar debt overhang to work through. However, the U.S. did work it through. We had a series of government monetary and fiscal policies that helped us get through the worst part of the debt crisis, and growth has resumed. Now, That growth has been limited. It is not as fast as we would like to see. Uh, Employment is way down. In fact, we are probably at or near full employment now, and that's a good thing. So there are lots of good features of the recovery in the U.S. to applaud and to take, I think, for the administration and others to take credit for. But there are problems, even in the short and medium run. The first and foremost problem, I think, is in the rest of the world. The rest of the world is not doing well. One of the reasons the U.S. looks as good as it does is that everybody else looks terrible. Europe is still mired in the aftermath of the crisis. European output is still well below where it was before the crisis. Per capita output is 6 to 10% below where it was before the crisis began. Um, there are countries in Europe that still have unemployment rates above 20%, and more difficult and in some sense more challenging is the fact that the Europeans have not resolved the underlying political debates and disputes that has have hamstrung the European response to the crisis. So we talk about gridlock in the U.S., but, but Europe's gridlock makes ours look like child play. So I think Europe is in big trouble. If, the U- if Europe is not growing, that's bad for the U.S. because Europe is our more, most important customer. At the same time, there are troubles elsewhere in the world as well. The the so-called emerging markets, that is places like Brazil and Mexico and India and China and Russia, are also in difficulties. China uh, used to grow at 10, 11, 12% a year, is now growing at quote-unquote only 6 or 7% a year, but that's a big drop. Um, The reduction in the rate of growth of the Chinese economy has led to a very substantial reduction in commodity prices which is good for consumers but bad for the commodity producers so that countries like Brazil 
have faced very difficult conditions. Their economy is in a very severe recession. The currency has dropped. The economy is in, a, in, in almost a depression mode. So the emerging markets are in trouble as well. Inasmuch as the U.S. is a very open economy, or much more open today than it was 30 or 40 years ago, reliant upon foreign investments, reliant, uh, reliant upon exports, the fact that the rest of the world economy is in trouble is bad news for us in the short and medium run. So if there is a short and medium term threat to the U.S. economy, it is first and foremost, I think, from the rest of the world. Now, uh, there is another problem, and that is one that is very difficult to deal with. It has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, it's a little bit like the weather in that everybody talks about it, but no one knows what, quite what to do about it, uh, and that is income inequality. Although the U.S. economy has done well, the benefits of the recovery have accrued almost entirely to the top one-third of America's income distribution. Uh, in fact, median household in income is still 5 or 6% below where it was before the crisis. So the average American family actually is not better off despite the recovery. In fact, is worse off than they were 10 years ago. And in fact, median household income today is roughly where it was 20 years ago. So this, is, this helps explain a lot of the anger and frustration in the U.S. Yes, the economy is growing. Yes, output is rising. But the benefits of that economic growth have not been evenly distributed. They have accrued overwhelmingly to the top 20, 30 percent of the income distribution. Whatever one may think of this morally, ethically or on any other terms, from a political standpoint, it's a difficulty because it, it, it feeds into the kind of anger and frustration that we have seen erupting in the presidential campaign over the last few months. Final thing I would say is in the long run. People talk about decline. Well, here in the UK, you have a lot of experience both in decline itself and in talking about decline. But it's very important to make a distinction between absolute and relative decline. The U.S. is, quote-unquote, declining relative to the rest of the world in the sense that America's share of world output is lower than it was, say, in 1950 or even 1960 or even 1990. That's largely, however, the result of the very rapid growth in countries like China and India. I, for one, do not think that rapid growth in China and India is a bad thing for the U.S., Chinese, there are, there are 3 billion people in Asia in rapidly growing economies in Asia, not just China and India, but also Vietnam, Korea, Taiwan, a whole series of other uh, economies in China. 3 billion uh, people in, in, in Asia whose economies have grown very rapidly, whose incomes have doubled, quadrupled, and more over the last 25 years. Those are 3 billion people who are consuming a lot more than they used to, and they're consuming a lot more American products than they used to. So, yes, it's true that relative to, say, China or the rest of the world, the U.S. is a smaller economy, but that is not necessarily a bad thing. Our standard of living does not depend on how rich we are relative to the Chinese. Our standard of living depends on how rich we are. So, yeah, it may well be the case that our status in the world is declining in the sense that our share of world output is declining, that doesn't mean that our economy is in decline. 
Now, there are, there are political implications. We will have to deal with a China which is more economically and politically important, but that's a whole different set of issues. The notion that the U.S. is in decline, I think, is misguided. I just actually, just before I move on to the next question, I'd like to just pick up one of the points you talked about, about inequality, and you sort of said that you know, the median household income hasn't actually changed in 20 years, which is kind of incredible when you think about it. So sort of looking ahead to, to well, looking to this, the current presidential primary and ahead to who, whoever the contenders may be in the fall, do you think that there's any chance that an administration or Congress will do anything concrete to actually address this, or will it just be more of the same? Well, uh, as with so many other problems, it's hard to address a problem when you don't know what's causing it. And there are, there are more explanations for the worsening of American income inequality then there are possible uh, explanations for or, or uh, resolutions to the problem. So, so let, let's start from uh, from a couple of standpoints or a couple of observations. The first is measured household income, median household income, uh, as measured, has not increased in twenty years approximately, and it's actually below where it was in nineteen oh seven in two thousand seven. Um, there are some who would say this is in part a measurement issue because how do you measure the value of the internet. No one had internet. No one had Wi-Fi. No one had personal computers or smartphones 20 years ago. Um, so those things aren't taken into account. So if we had some broader technologically sophisticated and technologically relevant measure of quality of life, it might show that people's quality of life had improved. But what we have is an economic measurement, and the economic measurement is not encouraging. And, and, and I should say, the U.S. is is not unique, but it's unusual in this. There are lots of countries in the world in which median household income has, in fact, risen. So it's not, this is not some inevitable function of modern technologies or the modern world economy. The U.S. is different. We really have had an increasing concentration of income. Now, what, how might this be addressed? You know, we don't entirely know why it's happened. One explanation has to do with globalization, that increased economic integration has put substantial downward pressure on the wages of unskilled and semi-skilled American workers. Uh, my colleague Rich Freeman has a famous article called Are Your Wages Set in Beijing? in which he points out that drawing two, mil two billion low-wage Asian workers into the world's labor force has to put downward pressure on unskilled American workers. So that's some of it. Some of it is at the top end that as Amer highly skilled Americans in headquarters activities and the headquarters of big American international banks and multinational corporations are benefiting tremendously from the fact that American corporations now have the world as their oyster and have global reach. So at the top end, incomes have probably been increased by globalization, and at the bottom end, they've probably been squeezed. So that plays one role. Another important factor is technological. That is, there is a general view that the rise of modern computing means that you can no longer aspire to a middle-class income unless you are not just literate, but computer literate and technologically sophisticated. And many people over the age of 50 may not have that sophistication, and our educational system really has not been retooled to provide computer-relevant skills to enough people. So if you think, as many do, that one of the sources of the deterioration of the income distribution is the technological bias 
in modern economic activity, then one of the resolutions would be to dramatically improve and retool our educational system. So first, that people are better educated, and second, that their education is more intensive in scientific, technological, engineering, and mathematical skills uh, that, would that would prepare them for the high-tech not the high-tech future, but the high-tech present that, the, that we're already in. Now, so I, I guess I would say that the one policy or set of policies that are relatively uncontroversial with respect to income distribution is that education will improve it. It's easy to say. It's hard to implement because just as with income distribution, no one really knows what makes for an educational system that really works. And so there are lots of experiments going on in the U.S. today with different methods of providing public education, different methods of providing math education, different methods of encouraging more women to go into scientific and mathematical fields, um, some of which are very promising. But it, that is a long-term project for the future to try to deal with the shortcomings of our educational system. So in December, the, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the first time in, I think, more than seven years. So given the current global economic circumstances, which you've, which you've already outlined, do you think this was the correct decision? I think the Fed probably had little choice. The Fed, <laughs> people talk about the, the, the Fed's dual mandate, the typical dual mandate being full employment and price stability. Uh, now a third mandate has been added, which is financial stability. But the other kind of dual mandate the Fed has is it's responsible for domestic economic, monetary and economic conditions. But because the dollar is the world's reserve currency, in some sense, the Fed is the world's central bank. And so the Fed has to take into account not just domestic monetary conditions, but also international monetary conditions. I think the Fed knew full well that raising interest rates in the U.S. was going to cause difficulties in much of the rest of the world. And it has. But I also think that the Fed was well aware of the fact that if it did not raise interest rates in the U.S., it would be ignoring domestic economic conditions. The recovery is well underway. We are at or near full employment. There's no sign of inflation, but interest rates are at historic lows. And I think that a, an, a continuation of the effectively zero interest rates in the U.S. was not justifiable on domestic economic grounds. So the Fed is engaged in a very, very difficult dance. It needs to adopt a monetary policy that is appropriate to the U.S. and its conditions, but that is also appropriate to the role of the U.S. and the world economy and the world's economic conditions. And because, in some sense, the world and the U.S. are going in different directions, that's not easy. It's like trying to drive a car that's going in two different directions. If, the car, if all four wheels are going in the same direction, then, then you turn the steering wheel and you go. But if two of the wheels are going to the right and two are going to the left, what are you going to do? So I think the Fed was faced with a difficult choice. The fact is that they raised interest rates only very slightly. There are some indications that they will not continue to raise, despite the fact that they said they were going to because of the international effects. I think this just highlights the extent to which globalization has changed the way in which all central banks, but especially the Fed, has to operate. The Fed now, they will not say this explicitly because it's not part of their mandate, but the Fed now has to take into account, very centrally, the effects of its policies on the rest of the world because those effects will eventually come back to hurt the U.S. as well. 
you, you again you spoke a little bit about this uh, already in terms of the, uh, the the power of the the dollar as a reserve currency. So how would you explain the continued dominance of the U.S. dollar despite what some perceive as relatively high debt levels? And then you have questions over budget stability after government shutdowns and it nearly defaulted. Uh, I think in twenty fourteen. But why is the dollar? Why is it still such a such a big thing? Well, there it reminds me of two things. The first is. Um, what we sometimes call the first rule of wing walking. You know, the wing walkers were those guys back in the 1920s who would go out in the wings of biplanes and walk as the planes were flying through the air. Not something I would want to do. But anyway, the first rule of wing walking apparently is don't let go of something unless you have something else to hold on to. So as applied to reserve currencies, you know, yes, the dollar is the worst of all reserve currencies except for all the others. What are you going to get out of? You're going to divest yourself of dollars and grab on to the extraordinary euro since it's in such great shape or the yen since Japan is doing so well or the renminbi uh, which is not an international currency for all intents and purposes I, the reality is that the US dollar is I wouldn't say it's the only game in town but it remains the safe haven we saw that in 2008 when the world's markets froze up and people were were running for cover What's the cover they ran to? They ran to the U.S. dollar. They also ran to the Swiss franc. But, I mean, there's only so many Swiss francs in the world. Not everybody can pile into the Swiss franc or it would you know, go up 100 times in value. So um, now what makes the dollar reliable or relatively reliable? I think it is the depth and breadth of our financial markets. The general sense that the Fed is reliable, that the Fed is not going to embark on some crazy path People are concerned about the state of our politics, which is, to say the least, you know, unsettled and unsettling. The government shutdowns and the debates over sequestration and all of those things, the fact that we have uh, a divided government and lots and lots of controversies, it's, it's disturbing at some level. But, you know, our founding fathers designed a system of government, of checks and balances, that imparts a tremendous status quo bias to policy. It makes it very, very difficult to change things rapidly. And from the standpoint of a reserve currency, that's not a bad thing. Right? Yeah, sure, the Republicans can shut down the government, but if they do, they're going to pay a price for it, so they don't do it very often. Yeah, sure, the Congress can threaten to dissolve the Fed or take us back to the gold standard, but the chances of that happening are very, very slim. So, yes, there are lots and lots of political worries and lots and lots of strange political beasts arising on the horizon in the U.S. and, and, and uh, sentiments that are hard to fathom and would probably be dangerous to America's international monetary and financial position. But the reality is that American monetary and financial policy has been very stable, very reliable, very predictable for a very long time. And so the smart money looks at what's happening in the euro or in Japan and says, we don't know that these are going to be currencies of the future. We have a lot more faith in the U.S. dollar. And even if the U.S. dollar runs into trouble, the markets are deep enough that we can protect ourselves against that. So now looking across the Atlantic to, to Europe for our, our European friends and, and listeners, um, what lessons should policymakers who design the euro, you talked about uh, you talked about the euro's troubles, 
what should they have taken from the evolution of the U.S. dollar as a single currency? Well, there is a, a sort of a fiction here in Europe that the U.S. easily solved all these problems, and why couldn't the Europeans? I mean, we, we have failed, Europeans say, because you guys set up a common currency and a single market and with, with uh, fiscal stabilizers and we're able to deal with exogenous macroeconomic shocks, correlated shocks and all these things. And look at, what, look at us. Look at what's happened. We've collapsed into infighting and political controversy and a divided eurozone and it's not clear where things are going. I guess the message that I would try to get across is that it was very difficult for the U.S., very, very difficult. Depending on how you count, the U.S. didn't have a single currency for 80 years after independence. It wasn't until 1863 that we actually had a national currency. Before then, currencies with a few hiatus, with a couple of hiatuses, in, whatever the plural of hiatus is, um, <laughs> a couple of pauses in between, that from, from 1783, when the country really got its independence, through 1863, we did not have a national currency. Right? We did not have a modern central bank until 1913. For all intents and purposes, we did not have modern federal fiscal policy until maybe the 1930s, probably more realistically the 1950s. So if you think about the three perquisites of a, an economic and monetary union, that is a common currency, a common central bank, and a fiscal union, the U.S. really didn't have those three things until the 1950s. That's a long time. Depends how you count. It took 80 or 150 or almost 200 years for the U.S. to develop a functioning economic and monetary union. And all through that period, it was hotly contested politically. Presidential election after presidential election were fought over whether we would have a single currency, whether we would have a modern central bank, what powers the federal government would have over fiscal policy. Those issues are still debated in the U.S. There are still some who would like to close the Fed, go back to the gold standard, reduce the role of the federal government in automatic stabilizers. So developing a common economic and monetary policy for a disparate union like the United States or the European Union is politically extremely challenging. There are, in some ways, as many differences among American states as there are among European countries. Not, as, not quite as big in terms of per capita income, but a place like Texas or Louisiana or Wyoming is very different from a place like Massachusetts or New York or California. And it is still difficult for us as a union of very different states to arrive at a common set of economic, monetary, financial, and fiscal policies. And it will always be different for the European, difficult for the European Union as well. You, you talked briefly about uh, the gold standard, and that's something that seems to have come back a little bit, at least in uh, sort of the early uh, Republican debates uh, earlier, uh, late last year. Can you talk a little bit about what, what they're talking about? What would a return to the gold standard entail? And is it something that's possible? And, and if it did happen, what would it, what would it mean for the American economy? What would it mean for the, for the world economy? Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that it's not going to happen. Um, but, but if it did happen, or if we look back on the gold standard, what the gold standard implies is that you no longer have a monetary policy. You use gold as money, 
or you use dollars that are completely backed by gold so that the currency can be exchanged freely into gold. That means that there is no central bank. You have no monetary policy. The supporters of the gold standard today are typically people who think who do not like the fact that the Fed runs monetary policy. Often they don't like it because they don't like they think the Fed is either a tool of Wall Street or a tool of the president or a tool of someone else. And Today, one of the reasons the Fed is very unpopular in, in, in the U.S. or in certain circles in the U.S. is that the Fed has kept interest rates very low. When I give talks in the U.S. about current economic conditions, uh, typically a majority of the audience is retirees because who else has the time to come to hear these talks? And the most common question I get asked along these lines is, how do they expect us to live with such low interest rates? Because you have retirees in the U.S. who are entirely dependent upon their savings. And over the course of the 90s and the early 2000s, they were, got used to earning 6, 7, 8, 9% a year on their savings. And now they're lucky if they earn 1% or 2% because interest rates are so low. So that's where a lot of the anti-Fed sentiment comes from, the, the thought that the Fed is keeping interest rates too low, that you've got a bunch of unelected policymakers making monetary policy for the country and doing it in a way that's going to hurt them. Um, and the gold standard would be better. Now, the reality is that any monetary policy and any monetary constitution is going to create winners and going to create losers. So there are people who would benefit if we went on to the gold standard, and there are people who would not benefit, who would be major losers. I think the country as a whole would be a major loser because giving up mon being on the gold standard means giving up monetary policy. The closest thing we have today to the gold standard is the euro. Countries that are on the euro can't change their exchange rate. They can't lower interest rates individually. That is, individual countries can't. Can't lower their interest rate. They can't devalue their currency. They can't change their exchange rate. They take whatever the ECB gives. And the gold standard goes a step farther, which is they take whatever gold gives. Whatever the world's supply of gold is, that sets your monetary policy. So you have no control over your monetary policy on the gold standard, just as if you're Portugal or Greece or Ireland, you have no control over ECB policy. And we see how that's worked out for them. Um, if Portugal, Ireland, Greece were on, were, had their own currencies, were not in the euro, they clearly would have devalued their currencies, and they'd probably be better off in the short run. Now, whether, that's, whether being in the eurozone is a good thing for those countries in the long run is another matter, but certainly in the short run, in the response to the crisis, they would have benefited from the ability to devalue their currencies. And so would any economy. So giving up monetary policy has turned out to be the most powerful tool of macroeconomic policy in the response to the crisis. Now, partly that's because there's been so much political debate over fiscal policy. Fiscal policy has been hamstrung in most countries. But even without that, monetary policy is still one of the two most powerful tools of macroeconomic policy along with fiscal policy. And to give up that policy, to simply assign monetary policy to gold, is to give up a very powerful tool of macroeconomic management. And I don't think any modern economy is likely to do that. Okay. Thank you so much, Professor Jeffrey Frieden. All right. It's time to wrap up this installment of Extra Innings from the Ballpark. A big thank you to Jeff Frieden for stopping by the LSE and chatting with us. The Ballpark was produced by Denise Barron with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. That's me. And also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. You should check them out. They're brilliant. 
And here's the legal bit. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark or send us an email at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. You can also send us an audio message of up to one minute with your comments. We'll feature your opinions, tweets, emails, and audio recordings on an extra innings podcast later this season. Be sure to tune in next time where we'll be talking about American politics, participation, and polling. Thanks for listening.